Hey, this is LGBTQ&A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I spoke with Abdi Nazimian. Abdi is an author and screenwriter, and he's originally from Iran. We talk about what a non-Western LGBTQ experience looks like. We also discuss what it was like to come of age during the time of AIDS and AIDS activism, and how it traumatized him, as he says, and stayed top of mind for so long. And as always, we greatly appreciate it if you leave us five stars and a comment on iTunes. Specifically, leaving a comment is one of the biggest and best ways you can help our show. And if you want to go above and beyond, tell five friends. Wait, no, tell seven friends. And then tweet at me and let me know you did that because I would love to say thank you. All right, let's do the interview. Bye. Hey, Abby. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. The Authentics. Before I write it, I did not understand or appreciate the difference between the labels Persian and Iranian. So tell me if I'm wrong. P- uh, Persian is more an appreciation of the people and the rich history and not so much the current regime. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think what happened is after the revolution in 1979, a lot of Persians or Iranians, depending on who you ask, left Iran, and many of them didn't really agree with the politics of the regime. And I believe in an effort to distance themselves from the current regime, they started referring to themselves as Persian, which of course is the cultural history we come from, but is not, Persia is not a country that exists anymore. So I wouldn't say it's completely accurate. And then I think the next generation, kind of my generation, that largely moved here as kids has started to call themselves Iranian again because I know for myself I will refer to certain things as Persian when they're cultural whether it's the language or the food or the music but when I refer to myself I say I'm Iranian because I do think it's important for people to see the diversity of people from Iran so you know but but part of what I think the book shows and I I believe is People can label themselves the way they want to label themselves. I do believe that. And so if you want to call yourself Persian, great. And if you want to call yourself Iranian, that's wonderful, too. It's it's part of what makes it a rich culture. There's different kinds of people. Yeah, I really appreciate it in the book that all of the characters have the intersections of many identities. So you're yeah. not just Iranian. You're also a man and gay. And right. all these things make up. You. Right. Well, that's, that's so important to me because I know for me... Growing up as somebody who knew very young that I was gay, who always knew that I was Iranian, and, you know, who was a lot of other things as well. Who I always knew I wanted to be a father. I didn't know how that would happen, that I wanted to be an artist, which in my community wasn't something that was really possible, you know. And so I think the hardest part of my journey was reconciling all the different parts of myself, but especially being gay and Iranian, because I always looked into those communities and said, well wow, I love the Iranian community. This is kind of such a big part of who I am, but they will never accept me because I'm gay. And then I would look at the gay community and I didn't completely feel accepted there either because I was Iranian. And so it was very difficult. And I think really I've worked hard at that and writing has been a huge part of that for me. Writing these stories has been a way for me to kind of make sense of those two identities together. Yeah, absolutely. Can, is it? Can you be openly or an out in Iran today? In Iran today? Yeah. 
It depends on what your definition of out is. Uh, you can certainly be out to your friends and family. You cannot be publicly out. You know, you cannot be politically out. And so I think there's a big difference there. Like I, a long time ago, well, not that long ago, but maybe a, a little more than a decade ago, the then president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, gave a speech where he said there are no gays in Iran. And everybody kind of laughed and treated it like a joke. But, But I think what that you know, what that awful statement brought up is the fact that there are no kind of political gays who define their identity that way in Iran. It's a different thing. But when I talk to my friends and family in Iran, there are plenty of gay men and women who are living their lives, who are meeting each other, you know, in their homes and their at parties who are, you know, having gay lives. They're just not able to define themselves publicly the way we are and to treat it like a political identity. So if you were going to visit with your husband, you and, and kids, would you, you would not be able to like hold hands, let's say. Like you would not be able to like quote unquote flaunt, you know? Or like, or is that no? I, well, I mean, you started with if I were to go visit and I wouldn't go visit. Oh, really? So yeah, so I okay. left when I was two years old and I've never been back. And plenty of my family members have for a variety of reasons, I have not. And at this point in my life, given that I've become more outspoken about being a gay Iranian, I wouldn't go back, despite the fact that I really want to and have a pull to that culture. Yeah, I, I, I ask because my conceptions of the LGBTQ experience, I've started to realize is really a conception of the Western LGBTQ that's experience. Right. Thank you for realizing that. Well, that's, that's like, that's huge because... I have so many conversations with people about, you know, being Iranian and gay or any other culture and gay, really. And people apply the kind of rules and norms of Western LGBT culture to it. And it's very frustrating because I feel like it, it's it's myopic and it doesn't see the diversity within our own LGBT culture. But I do think when you are an immigrant or a cultural minority in any way, that part of your identity has a spotlight on it in a way that it might not if you're just, you know, your family's lived in America for generations, you're white, you've kind of accepted that part of yourself. You know, when you move here, like I did at age, well, I left Iran at two, I didn't move to the United States till I was 10. You know, being Iranian was the part of my identity that everybody focused on. And then I start to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm also gay. And now there's this other part of my identity everybody's going to focus on. And those two identities don't make sense together. And there are no gay Iranians out in the open for me to talk to. And it's just a different experience. And so I often find I, I found this the most with coming out because like, I came out to my parents long after I did to my friends. And a lot of my Western friends were really like they were so kind of not understanding about the process of coming out to a Middle Eastern family. And, and you know, their attitude was kind of like, if if somebody doesn't accept you, just cut them out of your life. And I still see a lot of that now with the kind of polarized political climate we're in, where people are like, I'm never going to talk to my family again. I'm never going to, you know, this. And I'm like, maybe you should try and understand where they came from. Like, I had to learn to empathize with all the Iranians I knew who came here from a completely different culture, who had no awareness of LGBT issues, no exposure to it, and and to kind of hold their hand through it and be patient. And I really believe in that kind of empathy. And I just, I don't know, I don't find a lot of that sometimes from the Western you sure. know, culture. You, you said about how it's, it was so different coming out in a Middle Eastern home. Do you have an example of like some kind of that complexity? <laughs> 
Um, well, I mean, first of all, it just wasn't spoken about, right? So, I mean, the thing about Middle Eastern homes that I think sometimes people don't understand is most of the Middle Eastern parents I know, they don't really care if their kid is gay. They just don't want to talk about it. So I think that's the thing. Like, they will still love you. They will still invite you to the family dinner table. There's none There's none of that, like, we're going to kick you out of the home and disown you business. It's more about, like, keep that part of your life separate. We don't care, you know, get married anyway. And so I think the hardest thing, like, for me was, you know, I didn't feel like I couldn't be gay, but I felt that by being outspoken about it, which is what I wanted to do because I wanted to be a writer and a creative person, that in doing so, I was kind of breaking the code and, you know, breaking hearts. I think the irony of it is it's done the opposite in the long run because by challenging people, oftentimes they will rise to, you know, the occasion. And so it actually opens hearts instead of breaks them. But but yeah, I think that, that that was kind of what was expected. Gotcha. And now yeah. you're putting out art out in the world that has Middle Eastern and queer characters. Yeah. And I know that you said like that's it's fairly like that's a void. <laughs> it's definitely a void. I don't know. I mean, with the exception of a few films, um, I mean, two lesbian films that are incredible come to mind. But I, I don't know of a lot of art out there that has Iranian queer people in it or any Middle Eastern queer people in it. It's very... It's a very underexplored uh, identity. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know until reading the book as well that the official name of Iran is the Islamic Republic yes, of Iran. It is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah. that yeah. I, I, I mean, I went to look it up because I think mm-hmm. it was a high schooler student in the book that said it. Yeah. So I wanted to just like double check that she wasn't getting it wrong as in character. Right. But, um, like, was your family Muslim? My So my family was, I suppose you could say, our background was Muslim if you went back a few generations, but my grandparents were not particularly religious and my parents were almost in reaction, I think, to, you know, where they grew up and the revolution and what that did to their family and their home were almost irreligious, like actively irreligious. So I grew up very much kind of agnostic with no, I think they really wanted to keep religion out of our lives in every way. So I had no exposure. And I think that is... That's also something people don't understand really about Iran is the the level of diversity there is in terms of religion. Most of the Iranians who are here in Los Angeles are Jewish. Um, we, you know, there were lots of different faiths. I think a lot of the people who left kind of let go of their faith because of what happened. And yeah, it's interesting too talking to the um, Iranian Jews I know because yeah. it kind of tracks to what you were saying in terms of being a Middle Eastern person. It's it's hard to talk about in their families. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's changing. I know in L.A. because I'm I'm kind of involved in that community in L.A. It has been changing rapidly from when I moved here. And there was almost no Iranian gay community. Now there's groups forming. There's young Iranian gay people coming out. And most importantly, there's parents who are engaging in their kids' lives in a more active way. There's a support group out there for parents of gay Iranians, which is incredible. It would never, I mean... Back in the day, nobody would ever have shown up to that because there would be too much shame and other people seeing you there, right? Yeah. So 
it reminds me of how fast things change in certain communities. I, I was reading about like early gay pride rallies mm-hmm. or um, marches, and when the moms and dads came from P Flag, that they yeah. said that was the loudest that anybody right. ever clapped ever. That these were parents who were publicly proud of their gay kids. Right, and it was mind blowing. It is, and it sounds like in, in a way the Middle Eastern culture is just catching up to that. It's it's getting there. I, I think I think as with everything, it takes a lot of time, and so. I think it's just, like I said, I think you have to be patient with people and and give them the space to to catch up with us. You know, I think one thing we forget as gay people when we come out is like, we, you know, I came out to my parents when I think I was 24, but I knew I was gay when I was, I don't know, 13. So I had 11 years to come to terms with it. My parents had not had none, you know, so I had to give them time. And I think that's the thing we all have to do especially when we're from families that are you know that were raised in cultures where it wasn't a part of you know their thinking or their community of course so yeah and i think that too and then when you figure out that you are lgbtq a theme that i hear on this podcast is then researching your this new culture that you're part of since we're not taught it and like seeking that out lgbtq culture yeah well I, yeah i have i mean that I am so fascinated by because I moved, so I moved to the United States when I was 10. And before that, we had lived mostly in cities and mostly surrounded by our cousins who were very much like me. So I had this community of people that were like-minded, that were also Iranian, that also moved around, you know. And suddenly my parents moved me to the suburbs of America, of New York. And I was in this suburban high school in a suburban town, didn't really get along with anybody. I didn't feel seen or understood. And and I was 10 and I discovered all of the gayest things in the world. Like by the time I was 12, I had watched like every Joan Crawford movie. I was obsessed with like Rita Hayworth, Marilyn. I had a Madonna room. I, at this age, I didn't know what gay culture was or what being gay even was. I got to be honest, like I was a sheltered kid. And so I'm fascinated by, and I'm not saying every gay person loves Joan Crawford though. Everyone should. But, you know, I've been fascinated by how, as young gay people, we find these kind of signposts of gay culture. Like, what was it about those things that appealed to me at such a young age? How did I even discover them, you know? And and what and what is that process of kind of educating younger gay people about gay culture and what it is? And, and so I, I don't have all the answers. I'm just fascinated by this. Because yeah. unlike a culture like Iranian culture, which is passed down from your family, I mean, my family taught me about our traditions and we grew up listening to Persian music. You know, nobody taught me about gay culture. I just kind of sought it out invisibly. I, I think about that all the time and how everyone's, or not everyone, a big portion of the queer community is drawn to the same cultural I milestones. Know. It's like how different countries invented calculus at the same time. Right. You know, like different little queer children are finding Barbara Streisand. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And how does, I loved Barbara Streisand. Um, Yeah. And and how does that happen? I have no idea. Isn't it weird too when you like like these artists and then you realize that, oh, they're a queer icon? I had no idea. And I have such a distinct memory of my mom. So like Madonna was my initial, you know, Obsession, and I had her all over my walls. And then it was Marilyn, and then from Marilyn, I went to like Rita Hayworth. They were all like gateway drugs until I finally like ended at Judy Garland, you know. But but I remember at one point my mom like seeing all these posters of Madonna and Marilyn Monroe all over my room and saying, you know, it's so nice that you have crushes on these beautiful women. And and I think even at that age, like I didn't know, I was like, do I have a crush on these women? And it wasn't until I was a little older that I realized, no, 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 I want to be a version of them, or I'm. I'm identifying with them in a different way. And so, 
And I, I don't know. I, this is one of the mysteries of gay culture that I love is, is how we find this. And I see young people finding these same icons. I mean, it's amazing. Like on, on Instagram, I'll post because I love old movies and I'll post Joan Crawford pictures. And I see all these young people like liking and commenting. And I'm like, this is incredible. Like they know who Joan Crawford is. Like she's still resonating with yeah. young queer people. With your mother seeing these posters, did they have an inkling of like, oh, he's like, might be queer, or were they ignoring that? I mean, you would have to ask them. I When I came out, I, I was, I told them, I said, you must have known. I mean, look at me. I had a Madonna room, you know, and, and they said, no, we had no idea. And I think this is another place where people have to understand that our version of gay culture doesn't exist in certain countries and cultures. So I think for Iranian people, they don't associate liking Madonna with being gay. You know, my mom liked Madonna. Oh, are you saying you know? that whereas like a flamboyant boy in America is like called a fag and like beaten up, whereas like in Middle Eastern culture, he just might be a flamboyant person and it was necessarily he's not read as gay? E, well, I guess it depends how flamboyant. I wasn't actually that flam externally flamboyant. I think I was, you know, a raging queen on the inside. But but I knew, you know, and this is probably because of my upbringing and the culture I'm from, I kind of knew how to pass, so to speak. But I didn't hide the fact that I was consuming all of this media that would be seen as stereotypically gay. And like I said, I didn't know it was stereotypically gay. I had no idea. I was, you know, it started at the age of 10. And at that age, I didn't even know what gay culture was. So, you know, the fact that I was obsessed with all these old movie stars didn't mean anything to me like that. Otherwise, I probably would have hidden it. You know what I mean? And that's the interesting thing. So I think for my parents, those things were just interests. You wow. Know? It's yeah. not that, it wasn't that weird. And, and I think also this is the thing about Middle Eastern culture that's so interesting is the men are into fashion. The men are into culture. You know, it's not, there isn't, there's certainly a, a machismo that runs through it, but, but it is, it, we're very cultured. And so a lot of the heterosexual men in, in the Iranian community are also interested in you know, going to the theater and buying nice clothes and the things that would be seen by American men as, you know, completely gay. That's interesting. So there's like yeah. less rigid, like standards for masculinity there? In some ways. I mean, in some ways, it's the same in Europe, isn't it? I mean, when you yeah. go to Europe, you see, I mean, and it's happening in this country too, I think eventually. I mean, we're, we're a little behind on certain things, but, you know. I think like the unfortunate thing is that like Americans will go visit Europe and so they see yeah. it for themselves. Right. Whereas uh, many of them will not go visit the Middle East. That is true. That is true. So there was a and character. You know, in, yeah, yes, there was a character in a book who was an aunt, and she um, came from Iran to visit, and yeah. she's among the most liberal characters in the book. Yeah, and she's which, vibrant. Yeah, which was a very important thing for me. I mean, so she is the sister of the main character's mother, and the main character's mother is a Beverly Hills Persian mother who's fabulous, and you know, always has perfect hair, and is always decked in Chanel, and goes to all the like art openings and stuff. And the thing is, is that she has kind of a strain of conservatism in her. And then she's got her sister who lives in Iran, who wears a chador, covers herself, but who actually is much more progressive when it comes to, you know, women, LGBT rights. And so I thought for me, that was important because I do know many people who live in Iran and they are very liberal and they are very educated and they are very worldly and cultured. And I just don't see those people ever depicted in the media. You know, you just hear about this country that seems like it's stuck in the dark ages and then you know 
if anyone met the people who actually live there, they would be like, oh, you know, you're basically living in, you know, you the, the regime is oppressive, but within the culture, there is this vibrancy and diversity and so much hope and change and all of the stuff that yeah. makes us human. Was there more of that out in the open before the revolution? Or is this, has this been a change? I mean, that, that depends who you ask. It's hard because I was so young and I come from a family that, that um, you know, identifies with the Shah's regime, which was overthrown. And so, you know, before that, especially if you were from a certain class of people, Iran was modernizing. It was very Western. I mean, you know, all the Western performers went there. It's like Frank Sinatra would play there and Bob Dylan would play there. You know, it was basically like Tehran was like a European city, but there was a huge, you know, gap between the wealthy and the not wealthy, the religious and the not religious. And I think it probably, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a historian and I wasn't there. I was, I was too. I but, guess that like, I don't, yeah, I, I think there's different perspectives on what Iran was like. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I just think it's fascinating, like the periods of conservatism and liberalism. Yeah. And I, I, I think a lot about 1940s, like Berlin yeah. before the war and how liberal yeah. it was. Right. And the fact that Absolutely. something like that existed. I know. And I don't even I know. know if we're at that I would love to go back to yet, that era. You know? So in a queen, yeah, we're in many ways, you know, in some ways, very important ways, we've moved forward so much. But then in other ways, you know, we haven't. Right. And, and like, and, what if that Berlin yeah. was able to keep growing? And right. now 70 years later, it's, you know, what does it look like? I, I don't know. Stopping? It would look like being in Liza Minnelli's head or something. <laughs> it would be incredible. I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I, would, I would love that. And I think cultures, you know, this, you know, American culture, you know, we've been very lucky because this is a country that has basically remained stable. When you think about it, you know, all the wars we've fought have been on other people's soil. We don't really fight them on our own land, you know, or we haven't since a long, long time ago. And, you know, countries like Iran, they've gone through so much regime change and so much. But but I think what's very inspiring about them is that the people still retain their culture, their hope for their country and and I think that, you know, the large majority of people within Iran are young and there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of hope that things will, will change. Oh, really? I think so. Good. You mentioned your father. Mm -hmm. What is it like this political moment we're in, in terms of raising kids in it? I think it's, as a gay father, when I first, I was first starting the process of wanting to be a father about 11 years ago. And at that point, it was still not as common. Like, I'm definitely part of a wave of gay dads, which feels amazing because there's a real community. But at that point, the response from a lot of people, and I was single when I first started wanting to adopt, um, which is not how I ended up having kids. But but there was just a lot of people who, who doubted it or felt like, you know, I, I think I got a lot of looks like, are you crazy? You know, and... I think now, as far as being a gay father, it's changed so much. I mean, especially in L.A. I don't know what it would be like in the rest of the world, and I certainly don't know what it would be like in other states. I mean, there was a great New York Times article about how different life and law is in different states. Oh, yeah. Which, did you read that? It yeah, was, it was, was devastating. I, it was so sad and made me feel so lucky and blessed that I live in California, you know. Where... And, and what shocked me the most was, like, the different pockets within states. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I read that, and I thought, well, wow. I mean, California, you know, even I ended up doing surrogacy, and surrogacy is not even legal in many states, and certainly not in many other countries. Um, so I don't know. I mean, here in California, 
most of the schools, like the preschool my kids went to was run by a gay dad. There were other gay dads in our, in our class. I see a lot of gay dads in our community. You know, my kids don't, they haven't really questioned that yet. I mean, they understand the idea of having two dads versus a dad and a mom versus one. They, they totally get that, but, but they they're not alone in it. They're not alone in it. And they haven't, more importantly, they haven't, they, they understand that it's different, but they haven't really questioned it as something that's worse or that's hard. You know, I think all that matters is they have love and stability and, you know, the rest takes shape. But so in that sense, I feel like the tides have shifted. And I mean, in terms of other stuff politically, I mean, it's, I don't know. I think you, you know, everyone has to talk to their kids about what's happening in the world in a way that is right for them. I mean, I think. Are they old enough to ask questions? Yeah, they do. I mean, I think, you know, we were relatively involved in the election, though I wish more involved given the results. And, um, you know, they definitely watch some of the debates with us. I mean, they're very young. They're five and a half. But they ask surprisingly smart questions. I mean, I can tell you I've um, twins, boy and a girl. And, you know, I remember Evie, our girl in the car, like the day after the election, like talking about, you know, you know, did they not vote for her because she's a woman? Like, why did the, like, she kind of did internalize that. And it's really interesting because like at a very young age, like recently, you know, they pick, sometimes they'll pick topics that they want to learn about. And it's usually like space or flowers. And one day she picked women who have done good in the world. And I was just like, this is so incredible that you're at this young age, you know, pinpointing this idea of, you know, women being treated differently. And so, you know, I think, and then as far as Trump, it's it's really interesting because we we are not fans. But I think you, when you talk to children, it's very important to remember nuance. And you know, one day actually it was Evie again, my daughter. Like we were we were speaking negatively of him, and and all of a sudden she says, you know what? He can't be all bad. Nobody is all bad. And it's so interesting because I was like, I would like to maybe think he is because I'm so angry sometimes. But that is kind of what we teach kids, right? Like she said to me once about my books, she said, please write a book that has no villains in it. And I said to her, you know what? I never write a book with a villain in it because I believe that even if you write a character that does something bad, you have to find the reason why and the empathy for how they got there. And so I don't know. We have a lot to learn from five-year-olds probably. That's amazing. He's yeah. not all bad. It was deep. <laughs> it was deep. You know, and sometimes we have to believe that he is because the anger fuels the the work that we need to do to create change. But, you know, we can't live in that place all the time. And we certainly can't live in that place when we're around five-year-olds <clears throat> because if you're teaching them yeah. to respond to everything with anger at that age, you know, we'll have an ugly world in 20 years when they're running it. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you said that you started the process. It didn't the love 11 years ago or before you no, had the kids? No, it was a long story. 11 oh. years ago, I, I realized I wanted to have kids. I wanted to adopt. That process took a while. I eventually was working with an adoption agency, got into a relationship, felt like it wasn't the right time. A friend offered to be my surrogate about a year later. I couldn't say no, but then it didn't work out. We didn't have a pregnancy. And then... And then at that point, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go to a surrogacy agency. And that's what happened. Oh, wow. Luckily, you met yeah. somebody within that process that also wanted kids. Yes. Although that, per- I mean, it's, it's a very complicated story. That person and I broke up, though he remains very close to the kids as their godfather and sees them. And then I met my current fiance when the children were three. 
Oh, so you... So I have a very modern family and story. It was a small but significant part of the book that you can... There are many ways to create families. Yeah. Be it surrogacy or adoption or having your own kids or right. even chosen family. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm sure that was intentional, but it was, it was like, nice to see all these different um, examples. Yeah. Well, ab- absolutely. I mean, that was very important to me in the book. The book is about a 15-year-old girl who is very proud of her ethnic heritage, who discovers that she might not be ethnically Iranian and she might be adopted. And and I thought, you know, I think part of the inspiration for the book was my kids and wondering, well, someday they are going to ask questions. And I've never hidden anything from them about the surrogacy. They're, they've met the surrogate. She's in our lives. Like, I'm all about honesty. You know, I grew up with enough shame and closets. But you know, I think people have questions. And so the book started from there. And then it did become a celebration of the different ways families are made and, and oftentimes chosen families, which can be friends. And I'm reading, I'm doing a lot of research right now about the AIDS era, because that's what I'm writing about next and activism. And I'm reading this one book and, and this writer was talking about how they've done research and how gay parents are much more likely to involve their friends and communities in their kids' lives than heterosexual parents. And that really resonated with me because I have a very big community of people who are in the kids' lives, and I love that. And I think they're so lucky to have that, you know? Yeah. So I have a theory. Tell me if this is correct. I have a theory that even though kids my age, when we came out to our parents, that even if our parents didn't know somebody who died in the AIDS epidemic, that they still were aware of it enough to kind of associate their gay children with it. Oh, yeah. Even without saying it. Uh, Does that sound like redundant, I guess? I, I guess I'm I saying don't, like, well, I don't know. I don't it. know if it's redundant. I mean, you're younger than I am. <laughs> and I think every generation of gay men that has come, you know, of age kind of within AIDS has a slightly different relationship to it depending on where they were in terms of the history because the history changed very quickly when it came to medical breakthroughs and for me I was of the generation that was kind of hitting puberty I guess when AIDS was at its worst and so I was too young to know a lot of gay men who died but I was at the perfect age for it to totally traumatize me and scare the shit out of me. And I'm sure for my parents to associate, you know, their kid coming out, although they, gotcha. they would never say that to me because, but I'm sure when I first came out, that was top of mind for them. But by the way, as it was for me, I mean, I was, I, I will say I was, I came out way before I was sexually active. Let's put it that way. I was so afraid of sex and I associated it so much with, illness and death that it was that was a real process and I think many gay men of my generation who you know kind of realized they were gay and realized they were sexual beings at a time when the only imagery of gay men was them dying and not just dying but dying in such a horrific way you know it's hard to let go even now with so much medicine it's always kind of there in the back you know because i think when something was ingrained in you as a child a certain fear or a certain you know trauma it stays and you have to always be working on it and for you it scared you into celibacy kind of pretty much pretty much lots of kissing you know (laughs) um yeah and look it's in some ways i protected myself you know so i think it was in some ways it was probably emotionally unhealthy and in others it was my only way of of protecting myself, but, but I'm very interested in it. And so, yeah, that's what I'm kind of working on writing about next is kind of what 
life was like back then, especially for young people. Yeah, because my generation, I I think that like I personally was not traumatized by AIDS when I was coming out, and later I found out about right. it. So I was not traumatized by it, but I have to think that my parents, who are well-read people, right. it was in the back of their minds, even yeah. though they didn't say that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I mean, look, I would I'm a parent now. If my kids came, I mean. Luckily, there's nothing. But if they came out as part of a community that was dying in droves, I would be concerned. I mean, it's normal. That's not like I I, I guess that's not a bad thing. I mean, a parent is constantly trying to protect their kids from everything, even though we probably should do that less and not, you know, hover over them. But it's that's that's nature. That's the nature of parenting. And and so I would imagine that there would be a tremendous amount of fear around that. Yeah. What what is your next project that deals with that? I can't talk too much about it because it hasn't been announced, but it's a it's a novel that is about uh, kind of a group of teens that are coming of age in the time of AIDS and AIDS activism. So it's kind of a a coming of age story set against that cool. backdrop. But fiction? Fiction. Yeah. You you're yeah, pre- young adult fiction. Okay. You're- so I'm sti- I'm sticking to young adult fiction, which I'm so in love with. Like it's a world that I love and I think after writing a lot of I write movies I write TV and I write I wrote one adult book and those are all incredible and I will still do it but what I found in the young adult world is that young people are so much more open to diversity in all forms they're just kind of they're actually asking for it there's all these movements of like we need diverse book and own voices and you know they they want more diverse content so for me it's a dream I'm like oh wow there's people out there who actually want to read stories about Iranian people and Iranian gay people and because you've said you've written screenplays with yeah. Iranians and they have not been made yeah that's been one of my biggest frustrations of a screenwriter and I'm very I, I count myself very lucky to have had things made as a screenwriter but they're not really you know the stories that are most personal to me this the movie and tv scripts I've written that are most personal are mostly the ones about Iranian characters and unfortunately those have never been made. So are they not made because Hollywood is not interested in making those scripts or is it because you often need a actor with a name to headline right. things and there's not a right. Iranian actor with that yeah. big a name? They were made because Gael Garcia Bernal wasn't available. No, I that's my joke. I you know because most of the time when big Iran movies have been made about Iranians, they have cast actors who are not Iranian. Usually they're Latino. It's like Gael Garcia Bernal, Salma Hayek, um, Alfred Molina, I believe. You know, um, So what will happen is, you know, and I think this is very hard, and the same thing is happening in the trans community with casting, is you make these movies about Iranians and the core audience of Iranians are against your movie before it even comes out because they're so angered by the fact that, you know, one of their, like in, in the Gael Garcia Bernal case, it was this John Stewart film where he played, you know, an Iranian hero. And it's, so you're not even getting the buy-in of your core audience. And by the time the movie comes out, it doesn't do well. And so it's this circular thing of like, none of the movies do well because they're from the get-go miscast and politically kind of, you know, blind. And then, and they're not creating Iranian stars because they won't cast Iranian. So, so usually they'll say, well, we have to cast Gael because there's no stars. And it's like, well, but you never cast an Iranian as anything but a terrorist or a grocery store clerk. So how can you create an Iranian star? And it's just this circular catch-22. And you and there are amazing Iranian movies that are independent, you know, made like by incredible filmmakers. Some are made in Iran, some not. But But I think when you look at it from the like Hollywood machine perspective there has almost been no really positive depiction. And some of that also is because Middle Eastern people are not seen as diverse by the um, government and the studios or considered white. 
so we don't fall into any kind For of quotas, like quotas you're saying yeah we don't fall into any kind of diversity initiative so there is no kind of mandate by studios and networks to hire middle eastern writers or tell middle eastern stories and so what you have is i mean i think what you have is what you see which is that we're basically terrorists you know so where does that leave us if they're not casting or i guess i'm not a member but we're um you if they're not creating work with middle easterns in the lead role does that mean like putting them in like supporting roles and you know like like do they even do that i mean i i don't even know if they i mean there are some Middle Eastern actors who are in supporting roles, but not like, for example, there's a, I believe she's half Iranian, but an actress named Sarah Shahi, who was on the L Word. I don't think she played an Iranian in it, and she's been in other shows. And there's great actors who play supporting roles that are Middle Eastern, but they're often not telling Middle Eastern stories. Gotcha. And usually when they are, like in the example of Homeland, which obviously, because of its subject matter, has a tremendous amount of Middle Eastern storytelling, and it's a show that I love... But the problem is that's one of the only shows that's depicting Middle Eastern people, and they're all terrorists, which I'm fine with, really, because it's a good show, good storytelling, and terrorists exist, but there's no counterbalance. You know what I mean? It's like, when that's the only thing people see, it's like, if they were seeing that, and then on another channel, there was a show about a Middle Eastern family, like the ones that I'm writing about that are just living their lives and care about their parents and figuring out who they want to love and, you know... It would be different, but there's just no, um, there's no diverse depiction. There's just one thing that's being hammered home, which is that, you know, we're awful people and we're going to hurt you. (laughs) Yeah. Hollywood minorities, you know, it's their specialty. Uh, While we're talking about screenwriting, um, uh, you did not write the screenplay for Call Me By Your Name, but you worked on the movie, though. No. Uh, But you worked on the movie. Uh, I did. Did you? I work at a production. Yeah, no, no, it's not. I'm an associate producer on the movie. It's such a good movie. I just don't want to take much credit for it. I mean, I'm very lucky to work at a company that was involved in the gotcha. creation of the film. And so I have one it's, specific it's question. It's so good. I, I, everyone who's read the, uh, read the book raves about it. Yeah. And they all want to know if there's a kinky scene with a peach. If they want to know if that made it into the movie. Oh my God. Are you able to say? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but you, I, I'll just say you will really like the movie. Uh, um, okay. It's, it's great. Okay. Yeah. Everyone wants to know. I have seen it twice and it was even better the second time. Oh wow. Yeah. Great. I that comes out this reveal like November. It comes or out November twenty fourth. Yeah, oh, I'm so excited yeah. for that. It's very hard when you're working on stuff because I don't know what you're supposed to say. But I'm writing a mo- two movies right now. Actually, one of them was announced, so I can talk about it. It's a it's an adaptation of a documentary called Out of Iraq. Yes, and that was a documentary that World of Wonder made, who I've worked with before on the um, Menendez brothers movie I wrote, which was so fun. And, and should... that's a queer couple, right? Um, Randy and Fenton. Yeah. No, so the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the out of Iraq. Oh, out of Iraq is about, yes. 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 So it's, uh, it's about a queer couple who meet while they're in the Iraq war. One of them is an Iraqi soldier. The other one is an interpreter for the U.S. Army and they fall in love. So it kind of begins as a beautiful love story. And then one of them, the interpreter through a program for interpreters gets asylum in the United States thinking the other one can follow him you know, very soon. Yeah. And the other one gets kind of caught in the immigration system and they're separated for many, many years. So it's, it's a beautiful story. I immediately, I mean, I had worked with Randy and Fenton, the directors on the Menendez movie. And the minute they talked to me about wanting to make this, I'm like, Oh, I, it has to be me. Like you're talking like Iraqi gay men. Like I was so excited that somebody wanted to do this. And 
So I don't know. For me, it's 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 incredible to tell that story, and also it really shines a light on how hard the immigration system is, like how you know dense the paperwork and the interviews and the you know. So for everyone out there who you know is listening to our president thinking that immigrants can just take a plane and come to America, and you know it's like no, that's not how it works. So I think it's important that people see that. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I have one last question. Sure. Twice you've mentioned a Madonna room. A Madonna um, what room. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain so that? When we, so when we moved to the suburbs, we, we had lived in cities before that. So in cities, you know, you kind of live in apartments that are smaller. And then when I was 10, we moved to a suburb and we had this little, it was like a little extra room that my parents stored suitcases in. And we also had a basement. And if I remember correctly, I took the little extra room, moved all of the suitcases to the basement and by the end of the day, I had covered every inch. It was a very small room. Like, imagine, like, a closet, basically. And I had covered every inch of wall space with posters of Madonna. I moved a vinyl player in and moved all, because I had all the records. I still do. You know, all the records. And then I would stack every magazine she was on the cover of. I would buy and I would stack them up. And it was just this kind of sacred space, you know? <laughs> when you're raised without religion, you have to have your own little temple and... I had the Temple of Madonna. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing place to leave it at, too. Thank you for being here. Thank you. If people want to find out more about you, send them to your website, your Twitter, what do you want? Uh, you can pretty much look for Ab Daddy everywhere. My Fantastic. Twitter and my Instagram and Facebook are Ab Daddy. Amazing. And I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. Tweeting at me is the easiest way to recommend guests if you'd like to do that. Also, if you would leave a comment and subscribe on iTunes, it would be a massive, massive help. And if you do that, then I'll stop asking every week. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. From executive producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.